Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello listener, thank you for once again putting your faith in us to distract you from whatever it is you should be doing. In a way, that's kind of what this podcast is for us, a welcome diversion from the everyday grind. So neglecting their actual jobs to join me on today's panel, we have Digital Bulletin CEO Romilly Broad. Hello. And our content director, James Henderson. Hello. How are we doing today, guys? Very good, thanks. For, yeah. yeah. Scale okay. of 1 to 10? Um, 8.3. Ooh. That's a lofty target to try and match, James. What are you? Um, well, given that I should be transcribing at the moment and it's my least favourite thing in the world to do, I'd go for a 9.1. Oh, my <laughs> word. That's almost perfect. Yeah. This is going to be really good then. Regular listeners will remember James's um, previous rant about transcription, so I'm sure he's happy to be on the pod today. Mm. And not doing that. So coming up on this month's episode of the Digital Bulletin podcast, we hear from a recently elected member of the Forbes Technology Council, getting the inside line on just how you become part of that very exclusive set. We will also bring you a review of our case study on Lenovo. Plus, there's our usual throwaway chat that, quite frankly, should probably be edited out. But first, some news. What has been going on in the business technology sphere, I hear you ask? Well, since we last got together, Jeff Weiner has announced he will step down as LinkedIn CEO. 11 years is enough for Weiner, who oversaw its relentless growth and ultimate sale to Microsoft. He will be replaced by Chief of Product Ryan Roslansky. Another high-profile departure saw Ginny Rometty walk away from the CEO role at IBM, closing the door on an astonishing 40-year career at the company. The general consensus is that Rometty leaves behind a mixed legacy, the promise of its Red Hat acquisition offset against a perceived failure for IBM to keep pace with others in the era of cloud. Now, our monthly Huawei update includes the Chinese firm being given a, quote, limited role in building the UK's 5G network, and in the US, it's suing of Verizon for patent infringements related to 5G and networking technology. So actually, a fairly low-key month for the industry's favourite headline maker. Elsewhere, Vodafone has become the latest partner to withdraw from Facebook's Libra Association. DXC Technology has hired a new CIO in the shape of Chris Drumgool, and Microsoft has pledged to spend $1 billion on carbon reduction technology to become carbon negative by 2030. Now, all very interesting. You'll find a full roundup of the reporting on these stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbullet.in. But now we're going to explore a story that is currently dominating news agendas everywhere, the outbreak of a new coronavirus in China and its rippling impact around the world. Now, it goes without saying that by far the most pressing consequence of the novel coronavirus is at the human level. At the time of recording, the number of related deaths has just passed the 1,000 mark, and health authorities from every major country are coming together with the WHO in an attempt to contain the epidemic. While recognising this very serious reality, we're going to look at the effect of the coronavirus on the technology industry, and in particular, the Mobile World Congress event due to take place in Barcelona later this month. Now, listeners are probably aware that a series of huge tech companies, including Intel, Amazon and Sony, the latest list, and maybe more by the time you've listened to uh, this podcast, they've all pulled out of their commitments to MWC in order to protect the safety of their employees and customers. As we sit here right now, MWC insists the event is going ahead as planned. So, James, I'm going to come to you first on this one. First of all, can you kind of give us some idea of the scale 
of disruption here. We know that MWC is one of the showpiece events on the on the tech calendar, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the mobile world, it is the event. It, it doesn't get any any bigger actually. Um, it's the it's the event every year where the, the biggest names in mobile sort of come together, set their stalls out for the year, showcase new technologies. Uh, a lot of them launch their new handsets. Like for example, last year is where a lot of the folding phones were sort of unveiled. Um, and they and, and and actually they come come together to sort of talk about the topics that will shape shape the mobile world in the year ahead. I think this year on the agenda they have 5G, obviously, as, as everyone does, but also the idea of interconnectivity and AR and VR. Um, I think last year, just to give people some idea of scale, that they had 110,000 um, people were at the event and that included nearly 2,500 companies, um, which, which also included hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and C-level executives. Um, who sort of turn up and get an, an idea of the, of the trends and that are, that are going to shape the mobile world over the next sort of twelve months? So, and and actually, just as a, as a point, sort of six percent of those visitors last year were from China. So that's sort of seven thousand people. So it sort of gives you an idea of of of, of maybe some of the reasons that, that these companies are pulling out. But it's it's cast a big shadow over the event. There's no doubt about it. As you said. As we, as we speak here, it's GSMA who are the uh, organisers of the, of the event are insisting that it goes ahead, but it, who knows? I mean, all it would take, I think, is another another a clutch of big bigger companies to pull out. Huawei is the biggest one, for example. It's the biggest exhibitor there, and it's a, a Chinese company. If they were to pull out, who knows? But, yeah, it, it's as you said, it, it, it it's the biggest event of its kind, so hugely unwelcome for, for everyone involved. Rom, do you understand the need for these companies to withdraw from what is a very, very important event for them as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've all been to these conferences, right? They are, especially the big ones where there's an awful lot of footfall, they are tiring, hot, sweaty. I mean, they're, they're essentially, if you were going to organise a Petri dish on a massive scale in order to incubate diseases, I mean, these, this, is where you, this is where you do it, right? And um Moreover, I think even if these companies weren't pulling out, the people that work for those companies that would be tasked with treading the boards, as it were, and manning the booths and the kiosks and doing those awful 12, 16-hour-long days of shaking more hands than you ever really want to do, they those individuals aren't going to want to go. They will be sitting there going, don't make me go, don't make me go. And so actually, inevitably, it's going to, even if they don't officially pull out, they kind of might anyway because they're going to struggle to get any of their people to go there. Do you think it's been kind of a, a domino effect? I think it was LG that was the first company to pull out. Do you think that the the more companies that pull out of the event, the more likely that more will then follow suit? Every Everyone that pulls out diminishes the event itself. And certainly from a competitive point of view, if you're a, uh, if you're a company, um, it's easier to pull out as soon as someone has. And yeah, if I was... Um, if I was involved in organising the event, I'd be quite concerned now. Uh, they must be thinking about what what to do about it. Well, the, the, they've got a, a real dilemma, GSMA, because at the moment, the companies that are pulling out, they as long as GSMA, the event goes ahead, the companies that pull out have to foot the bill, their bills themselves. I mean, you're talking colossal costs, I imagine, in terms of flying people in, exhibitor stands all of that sort of thing you're talking millions and millions of dollars as i understand it if if gsma were to cancel it they would have to foot the bill so that 
Well, they're insurer would. Well, precisely. Which <laughs> so it's a, it's a huge yeah. call, isn't it? It yeah, it's massive, and that's that we all there are already examples of the Wuhan virus spreading via conferences, and in fact, it, here in the UK, um, there's one one guy that uh, attended a conference for I think the gas industry in Singapore, came back to visit a few pe- few people in the French Alps. Gave the virus to eleven people and then you know isolated, isolated himself uh, back in Brighton when he got home because this thing is so contagious. Um, he was in a uh, one of those petri dishes, you know, mm. a few days before this. If you were going to do things to contain the spread of this virus, you would not put on things like Melbourne World Congress. Do you understand why the GSMA are so keen to ensure the event goes ahead, or do you believe that's an irresponsible position to take? Oh, I, see, I don't know, it's a difficult one. That's probably for someone above my pay grade, and I'm sure their insurers would have something to say for it about it. Uh, as you said, at, at, the, at the time that we're recording this, there are... But it, it, if, a, if a Huawei pulled out, and if Nokia, for example, followed the lead of Ericsson, who are in a similar part of the world, and pulled out, and obviously Nokia is completely ingrained in that, in sort of that big 5G conversation, Samsung say they're still going... These are these these are the companies that are right in the middle of this. That if they pulled out, then you, it feels like a, a, a deck of cards that's waiting to to fall. It does seem obvious that it should be cancelled, but I'm I'm not someone from the GSMA who's thinking. We, we, we. It's a really difficult call, not just for GSMA, but for anyone organising any kind of event of any kind. Really, these conferences all have the same thing: go and hang around in a big room together, then go around and hang around in the same hotels together, um, eat buffet food. So, you know, basically they, it just creates ideal conditions for this stuff. And you can't shut down every single... There is, these events are happening every day of the year and still will. And so a big part of it is to say, well, hang on, if you go to one of these things, there's a responsibility on you to look after yourself. And there's a bunch of stuff you can do, obviously. But the idea of going to, um, to uh, Mobile World Congress and, and just seeing everybody wearing surgical masks and, and carrying, you know, disinfecting hand... Uh, sanitizer around with it. I mean, it's just bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Um, will we be going? Would you go? No. Would you? Well, no. no, I wouldn't go. I think maybe that answers the question. I think that's probably in the end what will happen. Yeah, ask yourself. People would just you won't go? get on planes. Oh, no, no chance. Yeah. Let's move on to the wider implications of the coronavirus on the tech industry. With industry in lockdown in China, this could have a seismic effect, couldn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I it it's enormous and. Really, truly, the effects won't be fully known for some time. But obviously, as, as everyone, I guess, knows, obviously the, the, the area around Wuhan, which is quite a large area that's expanded as an area now, is more or less completely locked down. And that means that industrial activity in those areas is more or less locked down. And um, there's huge, uh, tight restrictions on uh, around the whole of uh, the country in terms of um, how and when and under what terms factories can kind of start to ramp up production again following the Lunar New Year holiday, which was itself extended. So um, in a way, that the fact that everyone was on holiday uh, meant that, that there wasn't such a big economic shock in terms of uh, you know manufacturing production during that time, because that was kind of expected. Um, on the other hand, it meant a lot of people were circulating and going on holiday and spreading you know this virus around. Um, but now that that holiday was ex- extended and now you've got these incredibly um, 
tough restrictions that's been placed on 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 workplaces really throughout China. Um, you don't really know how that capacity is going to grow, and so I was I was looking at it. I was thinking, what well, who what kind of manufacturing tends to exist in that that Wuhan region where you know um, which is the epicenter of all of this. Um, and it turns out 10% of the flat panel, flat panel display manufacturing industry is, is there. So that's stopped. That's just not happening anymore. Um, now, that will cause a ripple effect over the following weeks as, as that you know, affects all sorts of things. So in March, April time, we'll start to see the, the real impact of that as supplies run out. But obviously, the same is true everywhere else. And, and if you want to see what the impact is on a, in a very basic term on industry, um, you just look at the share prices of companies that are most exposed to this. Um, the companies that are most exposed, I think, are obviously a lot of tech companies. Uh, a lot of that, seem, I think, it happens um, in the Shenzhen area, just sort of in the on the Chinese side of uh, Hong Kong, and that's uh, that's kind of massively. Foxconn, obviously, is most prominent uh, manufacturing um, iPhones or assembling them. They are exposed because a they're in China, but b they um, it's not particularly automated. They have an awful lot of people doing the assembly, uh, and they've they've had to stop. And its share price has plummeted sort of twenty percent or something like that, just since this has happened. Now, obviously, that exposes Apple, who they're going to feel this um, the impact of this over the next uh, month or two. Um, so yeah, and, and the automotive industry as well, which is uh, is massively dependent on huge amounts of parts from a lot of the all around the world, a lot of it manufactured in China, and obviously the automotive industry famously operates on a really tight just-in-time basis, and that's feeling the pinch right now. So the manufacturing has stopped. Normally these parts will be coming in. Big motor manufacturers are in uh, just about everyone. I think Nissan most recently have said, look, we're going to have to shut down production in China now. Um, and some of them are saying, yeah, we're going to have to uh, slow down production outside of China as well because our supply lines are, are drying up. So it's a massive impact. It's already big in some sectors, but it's going to be big uh, over the next few weeks. Yeah, just to hang a few stats around that. So Bloomberg spoke to, it's a very influential supply chain analyst called Kyo Ming-Chi at TF International. And he believes that sort of Foxconn's main iPhone um, making base will only proper will only really resume next week. So in a week's time, and even then, it will be staggered at forty percent and sixty percent capacity, and working upwards to a hundred over a number of weeks. Um, and Citigroup has said that just thirty percent of the entire Chinese semiconductor workforce will return to their workplaces this week. So you, you you are talking about huge shutdowns, billions of share prices, millions of dollars in in, in costs. Um, in terms of what this done, Look, as we said at the start, the human cost is clearly by far the most important thing. But we're a technology podcast, so we're talking about the effect on technology, and it is significant. Let's flip it around then. Did either of you see the stories about companies, mainly startups, whose technologies have been able to give insights into this coronavirus? Yeah. So Blue Dot is a is a uh, it's a Toronto-based health monitoring AI platform, I believe. Or so they say, and it beat both the World Health Organization and the CDC in issuing a warning about the Wuhan virus and its spread, um, and even to the extent it, it predicted the the likely path for the virus from Wuhan to Tokyo, 
after his initial appearance, which is, I found pretty incredible actually. Like for for a company mm. to to beat the World Health Organization to to the punch, so it it just, it shows, doesn't it? We 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 write about AI and and machine learning and RPA a lot, and we always ask the question, you know, what which which industries does this have the most potential in? From a human point of view, it's definitely healthcare, isn't it? Because yeah. they they can spot things before human do. For example, so whether that's a machine algorithm uh, platform recognizing cancer before a doctor would, or or things like that. And that's this is a, an example of of that in in action. Yeah. Rom, Rom, I know you're very passionate about the tech and healthcare piece. Well, I think it's, it's something that we are looking increasingly more at because it's obviously an, the, an area where um, technology, particularly um, uh, advanced technologies that you know are just coming to the fore now, whether that's AI or, or, or whatever, should conceivably have the biggest impact. And um, for us, that's very interesting. I mean, I was I was at a Microsoft event last week, specifically around AI and healthcare. And I think just to carry on what James was just saying, the interesting thing about that, and there were a lot of people attending that event from uh, you know senior IT leaders within the NHS here in the UK. And what uh, came out of that, it was kind of like a hack uh, event, were, what came out of that were a lot of ideas. So there's the clinical side of things, which James has talked about, you know, you, you might be able to deploy AI once it's ingested enough data to, to screen x-rays and, and do all that sort of stuff. That's interesting. But the biggest impact, uh, certainly as far as this event uh, was concerned, was um, how you can leverage things like advanced analytics, which is really what the blue dot thing is all about. That's, that's less AI, more let's look at all the data we've got and generate useful insights for it. Uh, uh, it's about how technology can be deployed on the front line uh, in uh, healthcare uh, contexts, which universally, pretty much everywhere, are increasingly stretched by aging demographics, etc., dwindling resources. You can apply all sorts of interesting things like RPA, um, uh, like new platforms that can that can um, cleanse and make useful all sorts of data that's coming in from various different sources, and and be able to run effective healthcare services uh, a lot more efficiently. And that is probably where, if you peel under the surface a little bit, whether it's in China or anywhere else, our response to this outbreak versus say um, SARS when that was when how that was. 2003? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. That would be, you know, if, if when we, you know, look back at the history of all this and you say, what was the big difference that technology may have made? It was probably health systems themselves were just better and more efficient because we were starting to see a lot of this stuff happen that enabled people and resources to be deployed more effectively for people and organisations to respond more swiftly. Yeah, I think um, yeah, tech's role is increasingly vital. Obviously, kudos to the many healthcare professionals around the world who are helping to stem this um, this coronavirus. Now, this, it's time to wrap up on this, I think, guys, but there, I can't, I can't not, um, I can't move on without mentioning this ridiculous story that was on Reuters this morning about a, um, <laughs> a five-foot promo bot, which was put up in Times Square to, um, and so it's a robot which has an iPad and it's, station to allow people to go to this iPad and ask any questions about the coronavirus that they might have and it will respond with with answers. Now I, th I think the irony of having a, um, a piece of technology like this right. in Times Square with you know to talk about 
how, how can we stop the spread of this virus? And let's let's do that by having an iPad in the middle of an open area with loads of people's hands going on it. And well, yeah, <laughs> we spoke about petri dishes. Yeah. Well, it's pretty ridiculous. much like the ultimate <clears throat> petri dish, isn't it? You know? Right. Let's, what should we do? I know. Let's come up with something that can create a crowd. Yeah. And then give them a common thing to all of them touch. Mm. <laughs> so let's just make sure. Yeah, what crackpot's idea was that? Well, okay. <laughs> right. Promo, this is a line, this is direct from Reuters. Promobot was created by a Philadelphia-based startup that makes autonomous service robots for businesses. So it's, bas- it's basically a, um, a PR yeah, stunt. A PR stunt. PR, yeah. Mm. Well. Says it's run by a group of Russians. No, no comment there. Right, it's time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have all um, the tech-related news related to... Um, the coronavirus outbreak on digitalbullet.in. I'm sure there'll be lots more to come from that as, as we've covered there. But now we're going to change tack and revisit another of our case studies. And for this episode, it's Lenovo. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. Lenovo. Of course you've heard of Lenovo. The global tech player did more than $50 billion in revenue last year and it has been one of the most familiar names in personal computing for a long time. But like most product-focused organisations, in recent years Lenovo has been racing to adapt to a changing world increasingly dependent on advanced and connected technologies. Now this story is framed around what Lenovo likes to call its intelligent transformation and here is Ajit Sivadasan, its global head of online sales, digital marketing and platform, shedding some lights on exactly what that term means. So we are in the middle of what we would like to call intelligent transformation and there are three components to intelligent transformation. Uh, The first one is really the smart IoT um, related processes and you know how do you actually use smart IoT to make sense of the world. Uh, smart infrastructure, which is mostly on the back end, uh, trying to figure out you know this acquisition that we made of the x86 business from IBM, um, and it's quite frankly that's the future. That's how that's the backbone that companies are going to operate on. And then the last one is really trying to figure out how to use AI as a way of truly optimizing the business and providing value to our customers. So we call that this intelligent transformation, and that's kind of the fourth piece of our 40 years of existence. So yeah, this is a quite significant strategic shift for Lenovo, but Rom, this is a company that to, to which change is quite familiar, isn't it? Do you want to just tell a bit mm. of, a kind of a summary of Lenovo's backstory, because it's quite a interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that they are, even for a tech company, relatively young, sort of. I mean, you, you can look at a lot of companies and trace them back. 100 years or more, but Lenovo was founded fundamentally in a shed in 1984 by some people with a bit of money, but not much, and they started to uh, essentially uh, resell uh, IBM-compatible PCs, as they were called back then, into the Chinese market. But that, uh, And they did that, I think, successfully and, and made themselves lots of lovely money for, for a while, but then the real, the, the, the real transformation for them began when they... Uh, developed their own um, a, a custom chip for for processing Chinese uh, characters, which was obviously a big deal for the Chinese market. And from that, that that was really what saw them accelerate very rapidly to become the by far the biggest manufacturer of uh, PCs in China. But then, really, what happened um, to take uh, at that stage to take Lenovo from a a very powerful but mainly domestic company into something that's now you know a global powerhouse was um, the the 
first of all, the decision for to change their name, because they weren't called Lenovo, they were called Legend. And before that, I think they were called New Technology Development Company or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they thought, well, we need, a, we need an international, easy to recognize name. So Lenovo, they came out with, um, which was essentially, you know, they took the word Legend and they split it in half and kept the L and the E from the beginning and then took um, the, the Portuguese word for Novo, uh, for new, sorry, which is Novo, and joined them together, hey-ho, Lenovo, and, and then made a structural decision, which was that they were going to establish headquarters um, in lots of places around the world and distribute their headquarters. And one of their main ones now is in North Carolina. Yeah, it was the acquisition of yeah. IBM's server business, wasn't it, which kind of Oh, and some key acquisitions, thing. yeah. So they, they acquired the IBM PC business itself, firstly, and then a few years later bought um, IBM's server business. And so they now operate all of those globally. Then they bought Motorola from Google, which is Google had obviously bought it before that and decided it didn't really want it after all. It cost lots of money. Um, and so Lenovo, through those acquisitions, became a, a big player, not just in consumer electronics, but in um, the services that we are now seeing really powering companies forward as uh, as people move to, um, to to cloud infrastructures and all the rest of it. So they, they kind of, uh, and they're deeply involved increasingly in the infrastructure side of uh, emerging um, network technology. Yes, so where do you think so, this, this current transformation, the intelligent transformation, where do you think that places Lenovo in the current technology space like amongst its peers? What, what do you think its main offering is now? So they... Um, I mean, that's a good question because obviously every company of that sort of scale is trying to do the same sort of things. And, and we were speaking in in particular to Ajit Savadasan, who essentially oversees um, the relationship that Lenovo has with its consumers. And so that's everything from digital marketing to the kind of platforms that they're operating on, their analytics and how they can try to understand what their customers want. And really, he talks about intelligent transformation as being... Um, uh, it's almost another way of, of of saying customer centricity, which is something we hear all the time. Um, but what he's really saying is, if we imagine our customers and want to be more responsive to how they um, want to buy things from us, then that will lead us to service them better after they've bought something, but also develop products that are, are better suited to what they actually need um, and through that they can become an intelligent organization by actually being run by their customers almost yeah helping them to make those decisions uh, in the first place and we obviously at the time worked with a couple of key partners of Lenovo's at the time who were helping them to step forward in that regard one one of which being uh, was Adobe who uh, essentially provide Lenovo with their whole marketing um, back end as, as they do for a lot of companies um, and course five intelligence which is a big uh, advanced analytics and AI company in India who Lenovo turned to 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 answer some of those big questions about what exactly their customers want yeah. and so that's you know asking it, it through course five they can ask really big questions about um, about vast vast amounts of data that Lenovo obviously have to try to make more intelligent decisions from a customer perspective. Uh, and that's really what it's all about. And I think they're quite unique in versus their peers to actually answer your question, which is that um, they're going to be able to be quite, uh, to, to execute that in quite an interesting way, given their distributed structure, which says, 
like a lot so in North Carolina for example is their base there and that's where Agit is based uh, it, there's a lot of R&D stuff and they leverage the local academic institutions in, in around that part of the world a lot to to do a lot of advanced thinking and that's happening in North America it's not a, they're a Chinese company but the, actually a lot of their strategic decision making is happening in North America um, and because they've got that kind of globalist viewpoint and they've tackled that they've spent the last 20 years dealing with what that means as a to be a, a truly international company um, they're going to be able to in theory make lots of um, interesting and more bold and more agile kind of moves around this space as we will see a much more frenetic competitive landscape I think as, yeah. as new technologies emerge particularly around connectivity and stuff yeah you've mentioned it there customers are now key for Lenovo I'm sure they always have been but a big part of this intelligent transformation strategy is is the centrality of of the customer and obviously that their type of customer has changed from um, you know primarily a, a consumer to an enterprise level customer now that Lenovo is targeting Savadasan has been at the company for 14 years and he admits that the recent transition hasn't always been a straightforward one we have had a struggle with being a very product-centric company forever, right? And we have made a conscious choice over the last three years to go student body left and really focus on customers. And as you probably already know, that's not an easy thing because of the need for trying to get to every customer around the world in 165 countries, having CRM systems aligned so we can actually treat every customer well, have infrastructure that actually can identify customers, with all the concerns about privacy and other things, you know, trying to deal with a seamless customer experience, always challenging. But we also realize that if we don't do that, that's going to be a huge problem in the future. Because at some point, I mean, having a end relationship with the customer becomes really, really important in this business. As we go into smart IoT, as we go into a consumer that really is connected all the time, if you have to service them, you kind of have to move to this next evolution of technology. So in many ways, it's business model. We just recognize that customers are truly important and they're going to have a much bigger voice in the future of how the technology is going to be used. I think customers are going to be much more vocal in telling us what they want. And so our ability to be successful in the future hinges on the fact that we can actually listen to our customers more real time and are able to service them on what they actually need. James, coming to you now. How hard is it for a company the size of Lenovo to achieve true customer centricity when you've got millions of customers? Yeah, I mean, I think Ajit acknowledged himself is <laughs> very difficult. And, and I imagine a really fine balance as well because it, all customers obviously are going to want something that's completely purpose-built for them, right? But when you have as many customers as a company like Lenovo does, obviously that represents an, an unbelievable challenge. Um, but then again, at the same time, I think as Ajit acknowledged as well, there's no point of running off and making really smart technology with all these functions when actually, you know, that's not what companies are asking for. So I think there's certainly um, a recognition of that. And that's where sort of the effective CRM systems come in, smart infrastructure, data ops. They come into their own and, and, and are obviously helping Lenovo sort of streamline those customer relationships. I think it's, it's a bold move and I think one that will be quite painful at times, but I think one that's necessary 
And you know, I think companies that don't do that are going to find themselves left behind a little bit. Yeah, this because this kind of shift, it, it doesn't just mean a change in the types of products and services that you offer. It means a, a change in the way you as a company work and the your internal systems and flipping those on the on the on the head as well, and and you know completely completely changing the way you work. Yeah, it's a com- it's a complete change of behaviour and a and a company philosophy, isn't it? It's completely pivoting how how how, how the company is, has worked. Because there is this recognition that actually, the, the the products that they're developing have to be right for the customer rather than just what they they think they want. So it's it's really turning on its head actually the way that they're developing and thinking about their products. It's putting the customer at the head of that sort of process rather than at the end of it. So yeah, yeah it's 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 a bit of a one eighty. And I think also with. Lenovo, similar with a lot of with a lot of companies of this size, they 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 reach for that greater purpose, don't they? They they want to have an impact at a human level, have an impact on the human race, and 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 act and behave for a greater good. Yeah, totally. And Lenovo uh, are very strong on that. They want to have. They're a vast organisation with huge numbers of people, um, and they know that if they're very clear on on having a a, a more altruistic kind of vision and purpose, then they're going to be able to get people. Moving in the right direction. More now, that's that's not that's nothing unique for Lenovo. Every company tries, to, especially big ones, have that. Uh, you know, they try to reach for those lofty goals. Um, that said, I think there is something a bit special about Lenovo in the way that they've actually used uh, that kind of principle and uh, message for for quite a long time in addressing how they can mature themselves as an organization as a Chinese company attempting to be global and to and, and Ajit said some really interesting things about this actually in terms of how um, a Chinese company run by Chinese people who come from a certain business culture who make decisions in certain ways uh, and, and interact with each other in certain ways can then operate seamlessly culturally on a cultural level with uh, a huge number of people for certainly from the US who do things very differently and make decisions in very different ways. And the processes that they've gone over, uh, gone through over the last 10 years or so to really understand how, what, how that's going to work for them has put them in a really good position now to be able to say, right, we've, we've kind of nailed this whole cultural thing. We've figured out how to communicate with people who, um, who are coming from very different sort of places with set different sets of assumptions and uh, are variously deferential in terms of hierarchies or not and you know all these other things that might get in the way. Um, and it enables them actually because they've built that framework already to be able to act much uh, more responsibly on a on a much bigger scale more quickly. Uh, and I think you know just the, the time that we spent with them that was quite that was quite clear and it was quite interesting. And we've uh, frankly candidly we've been spending a lot of time trying to get over there again to 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 do a, a catch up and, and to poke around in the North Carolina offices a bit more but uh, hopefully that'll happen soon we'll yeah. see well listen you can still um, revisit the original story hopefully there'll be a new one up there soon but the original story is available on digitalbullet.in an in-depth case study videos including uh, that interview with Ajit Savadasan and the um, partners Adobe and Course 5 Intelligence that Ron mentioned there so some really good stuff to get into but let's uh, wrap, wrap this chat up and after this brief interlude we're going to hear from Susan Bowen CEO of Aptum Technologies Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights, and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in. 
For ambitious technology leaders, obtaining membership to the Forbes Technology Council is a big tick in the career box. A prestigious invitation-only community for leading CIOs, CTOs, CDOs, and the rest, the council provides a platform to network, share ideas, and discuss the salient issues of the day. Susan Bowen has a storied career in technology. She rose through the ranks at HP and HPE over the course of 15 years, has served as the Skills and Diversity Council Chair for Tech UK, and is currently in Canada heading up Aptum Technologies, helping companies harness the power of data. Last November, Bowen was elected to the Forbes Technology Council, and here she starts by describing how proud she was to be recognised before going on to reveal just how the process unfolds. You know, it's... it's it's really interesting because I, I suppose it, it was it was more than just pride to be honest. It was one of those moments that you kind of stop in your tracks. I, you know, everything is so busy in life these days, and every now and again you have to kind of just pause and look around you. And the prestigious name of Forbes and Tech Council and the people that are on it when you have a look at it. Um, yeah, I feel I feel super geeky, but also super proud as well. So um, get one of those badges. I, I don't know of another way to describe it. You know, those kind of ornaments that sit on your desk um, that look like if you were playing Cluedo, you could do some damage in the library with it. But it, it's it, they're kind of those big glass badges. And, and so I received one of those in the post and um, with a kind of supporting letter of, of acceptance, which is really, really cool, actually, because you don't, in a world, of the digital age you don't really receive that much in the post anymore so it's quite exciting James, Susan is, is clearly quite taken aback to have been selected to the Forbes Technology Council this is this is a big thing for people out like here isn't it? Yeah certainly it's a, it's a very aspirational thing isn't it to be um, to be recognised by um, by somebody like like Forbes and imagine it's it sort of confirms that you're doing good things doesn't it and it, 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 if you look at like the, the sort of people that are on the, the Forbes Technology Council, it's quite rarefied air. So, yeah, it's, it, as I said, it's, it's an aspiration for people. And Forbes is, is obviously, you know, phenomenally well known within, within the tech space. So it's... Yeah, a big, a big sort of benefit is the chance to publish your own thoughts via the Forbes kind of reach, which we as being in the media industry know is, is, is huge. Why do you think Forbes has developed such a, such a strong reputation in, in, among tech leaders and in the tech industry? Why do you think it sort of stands out? I think that longevity is certainly one reason that the Forbes has been been about for 100 and 102 years, and even in these sort of very tough times for 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 companies that that have a sort of print element, it still has hundreds of thousands of, of paid subscribers. So obviously, it's it's definitely doing something right, and that legacy is certainly part of that. Yeah, definitely. So let's hear more from Bowen on what is involved in the day-to-day of being a member of the Forbes Technology Council. So again, with the world of technology, a lot of the um, correspondence now is kind of all in a portal and online. So what happens is being accepted, you get all the social media, have an account kind of person at, at Forbes. They send you lots of messages on a regular basis to remind you of your responsibilities being accepted into the council because the council isn't just about, you know, kind of recognition. It's also about being prepared to contribute and create the debates and encourage 
having an opinion in the marketplace, to have leading thoughts and to contribute in a collective way to engaging with society and driving that technology forward. So there's quite a lot of constant interaction, um, albeit mostly digital, uh, through the council. And that's either across the council or through the Forbes facilitators themselves. Um, And we're encouraged to give opinions on a regular basis on different questions, different panels. So it, it really started you know, at the, at the time it, it, we got accepted in November, uh, the, the communication started then and it hasn't stopped actually. So whilst the, you know, it's about insights and enabling thought-provoking conversations, I guess. Thought-provoking conversations, I guess. <clears throat> Are we ready? <laughs> Don't mind us. You were doing it when I was talking. I was researching. You <laughs> Now, listening to Susan there, guys, it sounds like the demands are actually quite significant once you've been elected to um, the, the council. What do you believe are the, the, the specific benefits for individuals who do, who do get let in, as it were? <laughs> I think, well, the recognition that, that comes with being associated with Forbes is obviously a big deal. That's, that's a big deal from a personal career point of view, uh, from the point of view of the companies that you are associated with and that you represent and so on. So that, that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a very useful thing. And that's certainly what Forbes is kind of all about, really, whether it's talking about successful companies, successful individuals. It exists to celebrate in a glossy format success. And so uh, I would I would guess that, that she's benefiting from that, as does everyone else that's involved. But yeah, absolutely. I, if you're ever going to engage... Um, as we do as well in uh, this arena, which is a rapidly evolving one, it's full of challenges and opportunities and lots of things to talk about, then you will have to spend lots of time doing just that. And especially if you're doing some doing that through a, a venerable vessel like, like Forbes. And so she's clearly, um, um, uh, I think, enjoying that process as well as benefiting from it by the sounds of it. How powerful can those communities be for for someone like Susan who is going into these communities, speaking to peers in a, in a very sort of collaborative setting? We, we hear a lot about technology companies collaborating to to drive change, but what about individuals coming together and almost, you know, hand in hand delivering this change? Yeah, I think that's where it comes from, isn't it? The the way that technology is, it's sort of converging over every industry sector, and the the lines are definitely being blurred by whether it's AI or machine learning and stuff like that. So industry sectors are coming together. Therefore, the, the leading figures within these sectors have to come together and enact change and speak and um, as as well. So there is there is definitely there is definitely a, an element of that. No, that's good, guys. Just before we wrap up on on this topic, have either of you ever been elected to anything? Have you ever received anything in the post? A surprise invitation to an exclusive group of people? I was a BAFTA judge once. Were you? Hmm. Come on, tell, the, tell the, the story. BAFTA um, video game, the video game BAFTAs. Yeah. Yeah, so I was a judge then. I was invited. It's not the real BAFTAs, is it? When you said BAFTAs, that sounded quite impressive. It's, no, like, it's, it's, like, it's, the, BAFTA, it's like the it, ignoble. Same, you know, it's the same trophies and all that. It's a, it's a full thing. It's been going for years and years. Yeah. It's, mm. it's actually, in the industry, it's quite a big deal. Mm. So uh, that was cool. I've got really nothing to James, say. James, any elections? Any councils? No. No. No, I've got... You're clearly not influential enough. No, I've done, and neither do I claim to be. <laughs> right, it's time for us to let you go, listener. <laughs> not before we've given you some advice on what to do next. 
Why not head over to our site, digitalbullet.in, for the February issue of our magazine, featuring a damn good cover story from James on Rubric. We have lots more podcasts, too, to subscribe to, download, and enjoy. Your feedback is always welcome, constructive or destructive. You can get in touch with us at podcast at digitalbullet.in. But for now, it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. Goodbye from Rom. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug into digitalbullets.in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.